0: Welcome back to another episode of the Ghastly Podcast with me, Joanna McNulty, and my co-host, Nicholas Hall. And today we're going to be starting a brand new series all about meta-horror. And the very first film that we're going to be looking at is also probably, I think, the most recent film that we've covered so far. It's the 2021 release, Sensor. Sensor which is the debut feature from the director Prano Bailey Bond. So Nick, do you want to walk us through what we're kind of going for when we talk about meta horror here?
1: So this is essentially horror films that comment on horror films. And this trend is it it dates back to postmodern fiction, more or less, where works of literature started to comment on themselves in order to create irony and comedy. And then uh, raise questions about the relationship between artist and work, and the creation of the the text and the text itself. So um, the concept of metafiction has been talked about a huge amount. It's been applied a huge amount. Um, it dates back to as early as the Canterbury Tales, where the framing device of um, the characters all sitting together in a in an inn to discuss and share their tales was used by Chaucer and people like Shakespeare have employed it, think Midsummer Night's Dream, the play within the play. Hamlet stages his father's murder to try and get his uncle to to react to to the uh, accusation. And it's it's become a very popular form of cultural currency recently, hasn't it, Joanna?
0: Yes, absolutely. And I think as well, something that is so interesting about Censor, which um, obviously we'll go on to talk about, is the way in which it is a horror film which comments not only on kind of the tropes and kind of the common themes of horror films and the production process, but also the kind of entire industry around horror and the film industry in general and the way in which film is a business. And I think it's all really interesting in this day and age, in particular, when, you know, um, it's getting harder than ever to kind of make original um, horror films, especially in the UK. And I think it comes at a really good, pertinent time and it covers a really important phase in the history of British film.
1: Yeah. Do you want to walk us through the time frame that the the film takes place in and what it looks at in terms of the social and political
0: context? Yeah, absolutely. So Sensor is set in the kind of early to mid 1980s, which um, so British and especially older British listeners might know this, but a lot of people may not. So in the 80s, there was this whole kind of moral panic surrounding, I would say, media in general um, because of mainly the crusades of one lady who was called Mary Whitehouse, who ran a campaign called Clean Up TV to try and get all those horrible things such as you know, sexual degeneracy, homosexuality, um, blasphemy, all of those things. Basically, things that she didn't think had strong Christian moral values from UK TV, sex and violence, all of those things. She was
1: also famously uh, depicted by Julie Walters in in a TV adaptation of of Amy Amy Winehouse? Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> Mary Whitehouse is like, yeah, if you look actually. it up. I just remember it being on when I was younger and I was like, what the hell was that? And then when I read up about this, I was like, oh
0: that's yeah. who it was. That's who it was.
1: Sorry, yeah, you you go on.
0: Thank you for the fun fact. And it kind of formed part of this wider um, media hysteria known as the video nasties craze. I say video nasties in my Northern accent, but it sounds a lot more sensical. Video nasties, you know. And so this was a scandal that was very specific to the UK. And it was ignited basically as a result of the arrival of home videos in the 80s, which made a whole roster of international horror films that had previously been denied cinematic exhibition by the British Board of Film Classification readily available for rent for as little as £5 from video stores. And so I should clarify, obviously, the main character of this film, Edith, she works for the British Board of Film Classification. And they are essentially a, well, it actually used to be called the Board of Film Censorship. They changed it in the mid 80s. And they are the ones essentially in charge of rating um, all films that are to be cinematically released in Britain and also making cuts to them if necessary. And so um, obviously they had a lot of power prior to um, the onset of Home Video because essentially if they decided to not approve a film, it would not get shown in cinemas and therefore it would just not be watched. And so obviously Home Video was kind of revolutionary in the sense that all of a sudden all these famous international class- horror classics that were very perhaps extreme at times were now available for public consumption. Now, it didn't take long for the mass hysteria to set in because the video nasty slash Nasties basically ended up becoming the scapegoat for any and all social problems. And when you obviously pair this with the wider context in British media at this time of, say, Mary Whitehouse, cleanup TV, then it becomes even more potent. And so when the Conservatives came into power in 1983, they put the Video Recordings Act into place, which essentially gave the British Board of Film Classification the power to amend, cut and classify any home videos that were deemed dangerous. So imagine air quotation marks over that. And then over the next decade, censorship laws in the UK grew even tighter because the press was making a lot of links between people viewing these materials and then going out and committing real life crimes. And so actually the censorship of these films, along with, as I was saying before, things like Mary Whitehouse and her work, it meant that these films became elevated to kind of social importance. And so censoring them was seen as not just this kind of matter of good taste and protecting the children, but also actually of societal responsibility across all of society so that people weren't encouraged to replicate all of the horrific things they saw in these films. Now, obviously, yeah, whether you think this makes any sense or not from our modern perspective is a whole other question, but that's what the situation was.
1: It's easy to look back and really judge... Mm the moves that people were making and the decisions that people were coming to, yeah. in the, you know, with the gift of hindsight. you know go, it's oh, like, why aren't they being so ridiculous and tight up about it? Who could possibly think that there were actual connections between people consuming this material and then going out and committing crimes, killing their families, whatever. I think it's so easy to do that. And I think it's important mm. to to just remind yourself that it's not as easy as ABC in the time. And home video was such a new thing. And it must have really felt like a tidal wave of very intense and shocking material had just hit the country and people panicked. Mm. How do you create a legislative structure and how do you create a, a social structure to deal with mm. that? And and I I really understand why moral panic became, became a thing then.
0: Absolutely. As I was saying before about the wider context of depictions of sex and violence in the British media, whether they were from horror films or not, what that all plays into is this kind of very Thatcherite um, idea of society being in a state of decay ever since kind of the permissiveness mm. of the 60s, you know, sexual revolution, yada, 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 um, you know, increased um, welfare spending, things like that. It all forms part of this wider Thatcherite social message. And so when you have already Definitely. the idea of being planted exactly in the British public's head, that even like, I don't know, Representations of any kind of sexuality on screen are bad, and are leading to you know increased teenage pregnancy and single mothers. And obviously, single mothers are bad, and teenage parents are bad, yeah. and they're leading to crime, et cetera. When that is already being attacked, then horror films where people are getting you know decapitated mm-hmm. with chainsaws or whatever that starts to take on an even greater moral significance like oh my god the levels we've reached etc
1: and it was quite an easy target a very easy target for for people in government to point to and to blame for all of this rather than think considering it like an issue of policy of education of of just like wealth disparity all these issues they could just be pinned on an art form you know
0: exactly it's very reminiscent of from our childhoods in the noughties the whole video games cause violence. Oh crazy. It's just the same thing. I remember at school. History repeating itself. I remember at
1: school we actually had to do this like debate in assembly where it was one side who were like, video games cause violence. Then there was the other side who wasn't. And then it was such a big question. Yeah. It was crazy. I feel like, has that question gone away or have we have we just stopped being part of the debate?
0: I don't know. I I, I think it'd be interesting to see. I think now we've gone on to a kind of thing of, oh, music. Causes violence oh, because you know the kids are listening to drill, etc. So, honestly, the cycle well, really does just repeat. Blue itself. story,
1: um, that whole thing,
0: yeah, people were saying that that had caused violence. That was violence insane, and, and that riots, wasn't even et that et long ago. No, I know it was only 2018 ish, 2017. See,
1: this is so current, it, it never stops happening. I feel like it yeah. just shifts. You know, people are always panicking about the morality of something, the impact of something, mm. but it just shifts its focus, doesn't it? Mm.
0: Well, luckily for us. Given this is a podcast about horror films, luckily for us, it was horror films who came (laughs) under the under the knife in the eighties, which means we get a lovely film and a lovely podcast episode, a lovely podcast episode. But actually, obviously, I'm a very big fan of the eighties. Well, not really politically, but culturally, I really enjoy a lot of nineteen eighties content. So um, for me, this film was kind of a bit of a dream come true, you know, with all the eighties aesthetics, Mm. references, music, and so on. Anyway. I feel like I've gone on a little bit too long about the context surrounding the film. So, just for international viewers, well, listeners, that's what the whole video nasty craze was. And now, here's how it plays into censor. <laughs> I'll just quickly summarise the plot and then we can get on to talking more in depth. Butchering, sadism, murder.
1: In a Wave of depraved and corrupt horror video. You're off. Confusing fiction with reality.
0: Doug Smart, producer Ident Investment Films. Maybe you could watch my latest Frederick North submission. Wanted a woman's eye on this film. So, in Santa sensor- the year is 1985, which is obviously a kind of peak moment for the whole video nasties controversy in the UK. And our protagonist is Edith, who works for the BBFC, and she is also known amongst her colleagues for being particularly draconian with her cuts. Which again, you might think might be interesting because she's, say, for example, a younger woman rather than one of the, a doddery old. Mm, that's so a good that, point. We start to quickly see her backstory that explains why she might, in particular, have such a problem with these video nasties. So when she has an awkward dinner with her parents, we find out that her little sister, Nina, went missing when they were children. And so despite the fact that her parents have filed for her to be legally dead, Enid is convinced she's still alive. And she becomes wrapped up in the controversy directly when a film that she personally approved is linked by the press, and you start to see the historical parallels with a murder and so she quickly starts getting kind of like harassed by the public because of this article the very next day and so one day she is approached by a film producer who's an associate of a famous horror film director called frederick north who has actually requested for enid specifically to view and to cut his film don't go in the church and she watches this film and she starts to notice kind of the parallels between the events of don't go in the church and her childhood memories of the disappearance of her sister. And she even starts to notice that one of the actors, Alice Lee, kind of looks like her missing sister. And so she starts to gradually get it in her head that what has happened is that her sister was kidnapped as a child to work in a video nasties Nasty's underworld and needs to be it's rescued. A pretty, it's a pretty big insight. To,
1: to say the least. Yeah,
0: you may be starting to think, hang on, this is getting a little bit far-fetched. Well, obviously, the film goes on and Enya sets out to find Frederick North and she first bumps into that original producer who was also played by Michael Smiley. Oh, and I didn't know yeah, that. I was a bit surprised to see it. Yeah, and I was surprised to see him in such a sleazy.
1: He is a sleazy sleaze I was
0: like, no. No, am not Michael Smiley. Don't do that.
1: He's just diversifying his portfolio, Joanne.
0: <laughs> so the producer tells her that Frederick North is actually going to film a sequel. She don't go in the church. And so, obviously, she thinks this is a perfect opportunity. However, not before Michael Smythe's sleazy producer trying to seduce her. And I say seduce, obviously, more like harass.
1: Yeah, and I assault. think seduce is like giving him too much credit.
0: Yes. And so, luckily... For Enid, she manages to overpower him and he kind of pushes, she kind of pushes him backwards and he falls onto a metal ornament, which I think, if I remember correctly, was one of the awards that he'd won for one of his Mm. films. I'm not 100% sure on that. And, you know, it kind of goes through his back and into his chest and he bleeds out and he dies. So, you know, now Enid's got a lot more on her plate than just trying to get cast and film. (laughs) So she goes out trying to find North. On the set of the film, but she is mistaken by the makeup artist for an actress. And so she's dressed in her costume and all made up, and she's in a nice white gown, like this kind of ghostly spectre in the woods. And then she actually finds Alice Lee. And obviously, Enid tells Alice, Oh my God, are you my sister? Such an artist, like What are you talking about? But Enid doesn't accept that. And so when the film starts rolling, Enid is supposed to be a character carrying an ax and she's supposed to kind of hack away and attack at this kind of monster character who is kidnapping Alice Lee's character. But what happens is that Enid takes it too far and she actually kills him in real life. And then obviously Frederick North is like, what the hell are you doing? And then Enid kills him as well and so she's covered in blood and she is kind of crawling after alice like oh alice my sister i've saved you it's me but then alice continues to refuse enid's assertions and she's convinced she says no i'm not your sister i don't know i don't know what you're talking about and then eventually everything kind of goes into psychedelic fever dream thing so enid kind of looks down and she's got a remote in her hand And she presses it, and suddenly everything goes from these VHS horror aesthetics, this almost sitcom, happy ending. I mean, it actually also resembles the front cover of one of the videos she looks at in the video store. Of this kind of, like, idealised suburban street with a rainbow and a happy family. And in her bloody gown, she drives herself and Alice to her parents' house. And then the footage just kind of flickers between that lovely technical idealized suburbia and the reunion of the family and then to the horrible reality of Alice screaming for help while this crazy woman covered in blood mm. carrying an axe kidnaps mm. her
1: and and crucially uh, the final shot is of a tape coming out of an ended yeah. tape coming out of a, of a of a VCR machine with sensor written on it because then it makes you wonder like were we were we watching a film you know? it creates another layer of engagement where you start to, you kind of Mm. have to wonder who are we seeing this from? Are we watching a film of a film of a film? Is that a film in itself?
0: And I also think that it's not only the question of is this a film within a film, but also if this is reality, has Enid's kind of job of watching films all day and becoming so consumed in the contents of film and also their effects on reality got to the point where she is no longer capable of distinguishing not only in the sense of the horrors, oh well, because you know she's gone, she's obviously cracked, and now she can't, um, and she's hallucinating this happy future for herself and Alice at the end, but also in the sense of that, like even before all of that happened, and her drawing those parallels between what happens in the films that she censors and real life societal crime. Mm she become completely incapable of kind of reading her own reality through the language of anything other than film?
1: Yeah, it's become her sort of vocabulary to like describe her her existence at this point. Yeah,
0: that's the only way she can interpret everything. And so, for example, her kind of jumping to that conclusion of, oh my God, my sister was kidnapped to work in this thing. That in itself being such a far-fetched conclusion for her to jump mm. to is exactly the kind of ridiculous film plot that, like, you might have seen a video nasty. Mm. And it's got to the point where she can't process reality. She can't process the the potential of, oh, you know, her sister just went missing. Or, I don't know, perhaps the implication that she hurt her sister, we can talk about that later, but the sense that she just, she can't physically conceive of a reality that isn't dictated by these kind of filmic Code. it's so
1: ironic that she's there to sort of judge and dismantle and, and censor these films but they have become the the lens mm. through which she perceives reality itself the most poignant aspect of that is is that she's shown in the film to so for example if you take the the video nasties and then the sort of the really shimmering sitcom-esque ending as opposites mm. they, they really beautifully illustrate Enid's incapacity or refusal to sort of believe in grey areas, mm. she kind of reduces the world to this sort of Manichaean structure where you have good and evil. And yeah. it and so I think that's a a really powerful way to 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 illustrate um a kind of hampered view reading of the world no, and an inability to perceive genuine nuance in reality and also it's 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 coming from a place of real desperation mm. on her part because she carries this crazy guilt about what happened to her sister we never really get to mm. see or understand what happened to her sister which i think is nice i like the fact that's unresolved because that's real you know that's 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 what happens yeah, in real life things aren't resolved and the, we don't really need to know we just need to believe that she harbors this guilt and and that she's she's willing to go to these crazy lengths to sort of absolve herself of it there's this actress. I've this feeling that it's Nina. my sister. You know, if someone did take her, then they're still out there. You've never been clear on exactly what you remember.
0: You'd be surprised what the human brain can edit out when it can't handle the truth.
1: Someone's losing the plot.
0: I was wondering if you had anything else in this actress. What's going to
1: happen
0: to her? That's top secret. People think that I create horror. Horror is already out there in all of us. Like you're saying about this kind of massive juxtaposition she has of good and evil, is kind of the. Way in which you can extend that kind of moral commentary into film censorship in general. And obviously, as I was explaining before, the entire moral context of media censorship in the United Kingdom in the 1980s, there's this sense of nothing can have, you know, nuance. Everything is either rosy and beautiful and a perfect idealized vision of suburbia. And note as well, also, obviously, that kind of final scene with the rainbow, it's all about suburbia, domesticity, family etc and then the voice over on the radio as well is like all crime is over all violent films no longer exist and then the alternative to that is being covered in blood and screaming with an axe in your hand you know
1: she's so desperate for resolution so desperate for the opportunity to save even what is like a, a facsimile of her sister that she ends up becoming the antagonist of her own real life video nasty, you know, whether or not that happens is, yeah. you know, this, you could still debate whether that happens and it's, in, it's contained within a film itself. So the, it's, it's just a mind boggling, like escalator of, of uh, layers mm. of meaning, but it, it's probably worth noting that Prano Bailey Bond in an interview, mm. she talked about how she sees a lot of beauty in horror and you know, having grown up yeah. in horror and being a huge horror fanatic herself, as you'd imagine, she sees horror as something that's you know derided by many, mocked, um, feared by many, but it's actually capable of incredible beauty and catharsis. Importantly, mm. and when you look at it, look at Enid's spiral at the end, and and you apply those levels of catharsis and and, and release then it, it weirdly reads as a kind of role-play therapy where Enid's able to inhabit the role of the rescuer and fulfill in her mind that that gap where she should have been there for her sister, she should have saved her sister from whatever it was that, that caused her sister to go missing. But she creates that moment for herself by ironically, of course, taking an accent and and clubbing someone with it. But it does no, act as a kind of... A release for her where she's able to finally achieve her goal quite ironically she achieves her goal as a protagonist to save her sister she's not her sister but then of course she's Mm. able in her own mentality it doesn't really matter
0: it only matters what enid Enid herself perceives Mm. yeah it's all about her and this is the thing as well because there's so much this is what i also think is so interesting about the meta commentary of this film it's none of it is about the filmic text itself necessarily as in none of enid's job none of it is about the actual artistic value of anything she watches it's all about reader or viewer in this case responses what does it do to the Mm. viewer and so she kind of the viewer decoding her own life in these kind of filmic languages she's got what she wants she's got that satisfaction and that catharsis out of the story it doesn't actually matter what the reality is
1: she seems to have forgot long ago that she is she's a viewer too you know yeah exactly (laughs) gotta look out for yourself too enid um but that absolutely i think the fact that these films weren't being seen as as works of art in the least they were seen Mm. as as these items that could create or had the power to to influence people in supremely negative ways and then cause a direct social um unrest uh it's interesting i think it, it definitely was the easier thing to to condemn when faced mm. with the complexity and the interrelatedness of interrelatedness of society in general and of crime and of injustice
0: just point your finger at the films the violent films it's all absolutely you're
1: always going to attack the easy opponent and and that just happened to be at the time video nasties
0: now one thing that I did want to speak to you about also is the fact that this film on the one hand condemns kind of this censorship as completely lacking in nuance and being very black and white. Mm. And then the film itself in making this commentary, nevertheless continues to stick to its principles and remains nuanced. That sounds like it makes no sense, but I'll say what I'm about to say in a minute. Mm. There is an element, I think, especially with the sleazy producer and also, I guess, kind of the way in which North talks to Enid as well, where to some extent these films kind of are, she has got a point that some of these films are kind of based in misogyny. Mm. They do portray genuine misogynistic Mm. and kind of weirdly voyeuristic attitudes Mm. on the part of their directors, Mm. um, things like that. And obviously in real life, it's not just conservatives looking for someone to blame for moral decay True. who criticise these kinds of films. It is also, for example, many, for example, feminist groups, etc. that suggest these films kind of promote violence against women. And I do think the film, even though it eventually does come down on the side of obviously um, kind of, well, partly punishing Enid for kind of her hubris and assuming that A, she was kind of above these films and B that um, she kind of had the moral authority to dictate what was and what wasn't acceptable. It does, at the same time, kind of from the way she's treated by the producers, and because obviously we do actually get to watch parts of some of the films that she watches, and they are genuinely, at points, pretty hardcore. And they do, again, all focus, and even the film she's about to act in, it all focuses on things like women being attacked being kidnapped etc there is that level of nuance that i think i think it's admirable in the film as well it doesn't just go oh stupid stupid enid being a censor and thinking that she's like you know morally above or i think there is an element of actually yeah these producers are misogynist
1: absolutely the way yeah points. the way the producer comes on to her and and that scene mm. with frederick north where he's He's shooting her and she can't see him, you know, in the forest when she's yeah. dressed for her scene. And she's mistaken as the actress. And uh, it is very uncomfortable because she's standing under that really bright light in the middle of the woods, quite vulnerable, you know, and she's being watched and she can't see who's watching her. And it's this sort of metaphor for male gaze yeah exactly and her inability to to perceive the person on the other end of that it's a real abuse of that director's power and a forceful assertion of that dynamic that they knew that they could get away with pretty much at the time
0: i don't know because it's a tricky one because if i want to ask myself for example obviously i can assess censor and say yeah yeah yeah," you know it presents like a nuanced depiction or kind of like the whole video nasty Craze, but at the same time, I actually kind of look at myself and I'm like, what is my opinion on it? Because on the one hand, I do get, I do think it is silly to be like, oh well, this is you can't just can't be public consumption. The public can't be trusted to watch such decadent things. And at the same time, I might also accept someone else's assertion that yeah, you know, constant media depictions of women as, say, for example, stupid and annoying and subordinate might generally encourage viewers to kind of harbored issues about women himself i might think both of those things at the same time and sometimes i wonder is there a contradiction there am i not putting enough faith in audiences no i feel
1: like the i think the, that's where the film wants you to be isn't it and i think that's why meta commentary and meta fiction is is can be quite rich sometimes as a as a bouncing point for yeah. these kinds of discussions because i think the film does want you to be in that position of uncertainty. And it is something that we'll yeah. never really resolve. You know, the idea of you know that that tension between freedom and restriction and, the, and morality is always being reshaped and and it's always changing along along with society. So I think it. I think the nice thing about Sensor is that it allows for that complexity to remain and it doesn't ever try and reduce it or dumb it down in the way that Enid does. That it doesn't take a side, which I think helps, and I think is intentional through the use and application of the metacommentary structure and the framing device.
0: And it obviously also kind of implicitly, just in its very existence, because this is a thing I suppose which is kind of partly true even today, although I suppose obviously a lot of recent films have been working to rectify this, but a lot of horror does essentially treat women like victims and like sex objects. And so I think it's obviously interesting as well that in telling the story, first of all, Prada Bailey Bond obviously is a female director, of which there are still very few in film in general and even less in horror. But um, also the fact that the film is so female-led with Enid as the protagonist and kind of Alice Lee as his foil slash goal and then the victims of the film all being men, for example.
1: It's just nice to have varied voices coming into mm-hmm. horror because I feel like horror traditionally, at least in the horror that's been allowed to become popular in the last... You know as long as cinema's been going really let's be honest um yeah it's always been uh, you know a genre for for white male directors just like a lot of of genres so it's it's always good to see all right it's, all right, it's me it's me enid all right i'm a sister <laughs> you, you killed
0: charles no no he's gonna hurt you <laughs> He was my friend.
1: No, everything that I have done is to protect you. All right, to make things right. You're insane. No, please! 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 Never please. Right, Because right. you're my sister. What? wasn't real! Well, it has to be, please, because... Because you have her eyes. I you have a sister,
0: and it's not you! No! No, please, no, you... No, you have to be here, please! No, please,
1: please, please be her, please! Please be her, please! Please, you have to be her, please! You can tell that a huge amount of work went into making this film because instead of using actual clips from you know, famous video not no, Oh my God, I was about to say video Nazis.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, we should leave that in. Leave uh, that in.
1: Video nasty. Carry on. Nasty Nazis. Uh, they actually decided to, to shoot their own clips from video Nasties. So yes. everything that you see was recreated slash created specifically for the film employing techniques of the time uh which i think is it's well on one level it's it's a wonderful act of sort of dedication and commitment to the to the art form and to Mm. reproducing uh and paying homage to that era um of art but at the same time it wonderfully fuels the layers of, of meta commentary in the film when we sort of become aware that these were constructed scenes that are then placed within a film that then gets placed within another film, potentially, that we've just watched.
0: Mm, yeah, layers upon layers. And, and
1: just the commitment to aesthetic in the film in general is 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 beautiful, really.
0: Obviously, we've already discussed the kind of contrasting aesthetics of the final scene with the super hyper-technicolor kind of suburbia and rainbow, and obviously the kind of washed-out kind of neon of the actual reality where she's covered in blood and holding an axe having kidnapped a screaming woman. But um, I, what I think is also really interesting is the way in which the aesthetics of 1980s London throughout most of the film, when she's just before any of the proper horror stars and she's just kind of doing her job, commuting back and forth. Because the 80s is a period which is so often associated with really lurid, bright colours. And when the film gets at its most filmic and when we have that kind of moment of extremes at the end, that's when everything really ramps up mm. in terms of the neon of the lighting of the don't go into the church to mm-hmm. film and obviously like the bright technicolor of the suburbia at the end but at the start of the film everything's just very gray yeah and kind of rubbish and it's not really what you'd associate with the 1980s but obviously that's probably what it looked like in reality and that's you know just kind of bland dull reality yeah. so perhaps you could also kind of take the aesthetic cues as a film again as you we were saying i've becoming become like increasingly incapable of reading her life in anything other than kind of like filmic codes you could also say that kind of like gradual transition from really washed out greys to kind of like hyper technical and hyper neon as her becoming increasingly like wrapped up in the aesthetics and languages of film
1: it's a journey that we go on with her um, so mm-hmm. while watching the film, the film is first aesthetically distinguished from the video nasties and, and the video nasty yes. aesthetic of, of sort of um, crackling VHS and overblown colours. But the film slowly descends into that itself. It becomes a video nasty exactly. in itself or a video Nazi, <laughs> depending on your your preference.
0: I also think as well just the fact that it's the 1980s that's such a rich period to choose in terms of aesthetics because you know kind of like the classic and it's a thing that people do a lot nowadays as well to try and make something look retro mm. but i think also to kind of make something look obviously filming because now obviously we have such advanced filming techniques that and that things kind of look almost like reality just with a different frame rate whereas obviously with the 1980s you've got that lovely vhs crackle mm. And those kinds of slightly uncanny colours, etc. Bit like *Suspended* really. Yeah, exactly. And so it's kind of the perfect moment aesthetically to really capture what film and videos look like in a way that's really distinct from reality. Yes.
1: Yeah. This sort of surreality, like very heightened yeah. and exaggerated. Just like how we said that Edith craves... Edith? <laughs> Enid, sorry.
0: No, it's okay. I've been going between Enid and Edith. Um,
1: the way that she craves this release, this emotional release, the colour palette and the aesthetics of the film move from quite a bland sort of washed out, almost noirish palette that mm. we, can asso- we can relate to, you know, because I think that aesthetic is quite popular nowadays with sort of thrillers and things um yes, but it absolutely. moves as as Edith undergoes this journey into her subconscious and starts to sort of claim a sense of um power and agency over her past and, and and connects to her emotions and starts to to bring her emotions into her actions rather than suppressing them because she's of course she's very suppressed at the, at the beginning of the film but as she does that as she undertakes that course of action the film sort of blossoms doesn't it into this um lurid nightmare piece you know and becomes it becomes increasingly stagey um increasingly less real and of course like the the wood setting helps with that with the, the really bright lamps that on one level they are the coloring for the film that's being shot but at the same time it's it's inevitably the coloring for the film itself that we're watching you came back to save me yes Come on. So Censor, it's depicting, you know, a, pr- a protagonist with a sort of weak subconscious, weak in the sense that there's something that they're repressing that eventually comes out and, and in the end destroys slash fulfills them. I feel like that bears a huge amount of similarity to Saint Maud.
0: Mm. So um, just to clarify for any listeners who have not watched Saint Maud, because we haven't actually covered it on the podcast, although we should definitely do that at some we'll, point. We'll get around to I really it. enjoyed Saint Maud. So that was another, um, I think it was 2020, British debut from Alice Glass.
1: Another female director, I didn't realise Yeah,
0: so there was a little bit of a renaissance going on in the 2020 to 2021 period about um, a girl who lives in this kind of seaside town. And again, also there's lots of kind of like lurid neon colours when she's kind of on a promenade Mm. there. Anyway, she's very, very Christian and she's convinced that the lady she works as a carer for um, she's kind of convinced that she can become her savior because she's terminally ill and like help her go to heaven. And she kind of just gets like wrapped up in this sense of having to save everyone around her. And then obviously, I don't want to spoil it, but
1: you're gonna spoil it. <laughs> things
0: begin to pile up. No, things begin to pile up, and then inevitable consequences happen as things get out of hand. I think that's that, that a fair was very elegantly assessment done. of a lot of no, movies. that's very good. Yeah. And so I think that, and again, that's another. F- horror film focusing on kind of female protagonist. Mm. And I absolutely do think, yeah, I definitely see the similarities between the two and kind of how over the course of the film as well, their kind of desire, because both of them even have that same moral journey of I'm going to save other people from themselves. Yes. So more, it's like they're unbelievers. And with Enid, it's like they're too weak-minded to be able to consume these, well, I, I want to say art, but Enid probably doesn't even conceive of them as such.
1: They've both got these crazy saviour complexes that that push them to insane limits, don't they? Mm-hmm. And Maud, she acts through guilt in the same way that Edith, Edith <laughs> Enid, goodness me. Um she acts in the same way that Enid does through a, a kind of a, a guilt, yeah. a really a deeply buried guilt that she's trying to get to, to move past. You know, she she ends up being in in house carer after being unable to continue working as a nurse because of a well we we don't really get the whole story but there's an incident involving a patient where it's yeah. heavily implied that she did something to to harm the patient and cause their death um and from that sense of losing control of causing wrong at some point in their lives they then start forth on this journey to sort of reclaim a sense of 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 being in the right of being a saviour and of, of helping people to kind of overcompensate for that personal tragedy.
0: And in both films, obviously in the kind of end up exposing the hypocrisy and kind of the fundamental fatal flaws mm. of such a kind of like morally superior approach.
1: Oh, it's so chilling.
0: We should definitely do, we should definitely do a St. Maud episode at some mm. point, not for now because obviously right now we're focusing on meta horror, as you know, but um, I think, again, it's a really interesting film that has a lot of parallels with censor. And as you say, I'd like to cover more films which, A, for example, are British, not just because, you know, I'm super patriotic or anything. We
1: need good British films well, you know, them, yeah. I
0: guess the horror, the horror <laughs> industry is very America and Japan dominated right now.
1: Well, and kind of Korean now as well. I feel like Korea is a real rising yeah, star of, of sort of horror and uh, very highly stylized, bloody dramas.
0: Yeah. And do you think this is something that perhaps the fact that the centre is being released now in the 2020s might also, because as I was saying at the beginning of the episode, it's not just a meta-horror in a sense that it comments on horror films. It also comments on kind of the industry and the politics surrounding horror films, and so the nineteen eighties, for better or worse, this is a period where there is British a lot of British film being made. Yeah, some of it's low budget, some of it's pretty campy and nasty, video nasty. But like at the end of the day, even then, actually, the state of the British horror, horror industry and the British film industry in general, looking at censor, it does look it looks healthier than it does in the modern day. You mm. know. True, and like obviously things that people like Prana Bailey Bond, Alice Glass. Um, I've not heard anything yet about their future projects, and that is a problem as well. I, I read a Guardian article about this a few months ago about um the British cinema industry having a real problem with managing to get directors to do more than one film. Okay, that makes it sound like the directors don't want to do it. Yeah, giving them the opportunities to do it. I think I might have
1: read that or, or heard about it. I think Mark Cuomo mentioned something like that, where there's this expectation of when someone really hits it big with a debut, immediately everyone goes, "Oh, where's your, you know, where's your next film? Where's your next film?" And there's this kind of, it's almost as if they're set up for a, a sort of fake burnout, where they're perceived as like, hmm. you know, having said what they said and they have no more to say. But it's just a case of the fact that they fought for so long, for so many years. For example, like. Censor was based on a short film called nasty that was mm. written in well it was filmed and and produced in 2015 so this idea has been sitting with prano Bailey bond for a long time and I think people underestimate sometimes the length of time it takes for for projects to get yeah, funded to and approved and made. made there are so many levels to it and especially if you're a woman in cinema at the moment it it's difficult. Yeah. It is, and it requires a huge amount of work. And the moment you get it finally done, you have that satisfaction of knowing that your film is out and made. There's a ticking t- clock that just suddenly comes into existence, and then people start yelling for a for a second film, you know, immediately, and and thinking, yeah. making all these judgments about oh, run out of ideas, burnout, and this kind of stuff. But it's like I've I've just just got my film out, you know.
0: Conversely, you could say kind of as a counterpoint to what I was saying earlier about perhaps whatever you think of the content of these films, censor depicting the British ind- film industry in a healthier state, you could also argue, okay, well, you know, Frederick North and his sleazy producer guy. And obviously with um, Enid's complaints that the film's just kind of misogynistic and just show violence against mm. women, you could argue, well, yeah, maybe she does have a point in the sense that these horror directors, because they're both shown to be very successful and to have directed a lot of films, they're just kind of churning out film after film and what they resort to and can rely on is just these kind of shock tactics of, oh, let's kill the woman mm. horribly, let's have a rape scene, et cetera. And so, again, you could argue that's just that layer of nuance. This
1: depiction is dangerous. Come on, Enid. No-one's gonna pick this up and think it's the documentary. It's so fake. To you, it might be sausages for intestines, but what if it gets into the hands of children? Exactly.
0: Kids could be rewinding and watching those scenes over and over again. Which is
1: exactly what new government guidelines are pointing out. Video technology is changing guidelines. the rules. guidelines. Great. Not as
0: if we haven't got enough on our hands.
1: How can we do our job properly if we're constantly bogged down by government bureaucracy? It's the nation's sanity they're worried about. Why don't they stop slashing social services? Okay, I get it. But I'm afraid... We're not here to debate the government. Can we get back on track, please? Consensus on cannibal carnage. Reject. I agree. few cuts, I'd pass it. These are products at the end of the day, and yeah. these films are being made because they sell, because people want to see them, you know? And and it's not mm-hmm. just a question of, you know, the director's sadism or or anything like that in a capitalist system where you're 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 creating products that then go into a competitive market you can only make the things that people will watch and people will buy so i feel like that is an aspect that the whole video nasties controversy and and enid herself as a result of that don't take into account really
0: and again that kind of undermines the entire oh horror films cause societal problems and evil behavior not that i'm suggesting people who enjoy horror films are evil i mean you know we're here but um again <laughs> it kind of exposes the ridiculousness of such conceit it's like well clearly people enjoy watching them so
1: it's that thing about you know trying to imagine any course of action whether nasty or, or good taken by a human being and it's 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 been done before multiple times and probably in more extreme ways than you could ever really imagine
0: right should we decide? <laughs> Sorry, yeah, I know I'm just booked. Bit...
1: <laughs> oh, That's gonna be fun to edit. Okay, so that wraps up our discussion on Sensor. Um, hope you enjoyed it. Please join us next week where we'll be continuing our meta horror series, and we'll be looking at Barbarian Sound Studio from 2012, which um bears some similarities to Sensor. I think it's a great springboard for us to take this back into the past, really investigate the roots of this trope. Thank you so much for listening and take care. See you then.